0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. I hope wherever you are, you are keeping warm. I continue to get a lot of email about this opening theme, this piece of music you hear as we roll into the program. And... Uh, I guess it's been nearly five years since Jeff Eden, a wonderfully talented composer and uh, the owner of Studio 8, uh, located, uh, I believe it's in the greater Toronto area, uh, approached me uh, and asked if he could compose an original piece of music for the program. And so that's it. That's Jeff Eden's uh, score, if you will. And uh, people want to know where they can get a hold of it. And I believe Jeff has posted it or uploaded it. It's on YouTube somewhere. And then, of course, uh, we have another theme that Jeff composed as well, so the the second hour theme, uh, for those of you who are able to hear the second hour. And uh, it is. It's it's a wonderful piece of music, and I'm always uh, interested to hear what you think of it. I was uh, hosting Coast to Coast uh, this past Friday and Saturday, and I had a great conversation with Tara McIsaac. We're going to get her on this program. Uh, She's the Beyond Science reporter at the Epoch Times, Uh, which is an interesting little newspaper. You've probably seen it in the uh, newspaper boxes that line the, uh, the sidewalks. They're in 35 countries, I believe, now, in 21 different languages. Anyway, we spoke on Coast about the human intention experiments of Dr. William Tiller at Stanford. And these experiments involve people sitting around a container of water, for example, and simply by focusing their intention on the water they were able to alter the pH level. Now, that might sound somewhat mundane, but think about that. They're not adding anything to the water, not, they're not touching the water, simply focusing their thoughts, their human intention. And these are scientifically, these are repeatable results, these experiments. Tiller was the chair of the material science, or material, yeah, material sciences uh, department at, at Stanford. He's a mainstream scientist, uh, and then began studying human intention. So these are repeatable experiments. Again, human intention, focusing on the water, they could alter the pH level, bring it up, bring it down. And then, as we learned from Terry McIsaac, William uh, Tiller has developed an, a, a device. It's called the intention host device, uh, which can receive the human intention. In other words, it seems to record this human intention. Then the human subjects leave the room, He plugs in, Dr. William Tiller does, plugs in this device and it emits that human intention and has the same effect of bringing the pH level of the water up or down. Think about that for a moment. These are repeatable scientific experiments. The power of human t- intention, uh, anyway, I bring that up just because I was just uh, blown away by uh, this information, and uh, i 'm going to get to work on getting Dr. Uh, Tillman or Tiller rather on the conspiracy show to discuss this further. Uh, it seems to me I spoke with him years ago, but it 's been uh, a number of uh, years, so it 's time to bring him back and get an update on this unbelievable story because now he 's using human intention with autistic children um, and uh, netting some positive results as well. Albert the intern has uh, resolved some computer issues from last week. And once again, we're offering up another HOA, Hangout On Air. And if you want to watch the live stream, uh, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and find the tweet near the top of the Twitter feed. A lot of tease, a lot of alliteration there anyway. And uh, that, uh, that tweet will uh, refer to the HOA. All you do is you click on the, the YouTube link, and you are in. And uh, you'll uh, see me in studio Hello there, if, uh, you're, <laughs> if you're watching the stream. And uh, you won't see the, the guests, uh, but Elbert has set up a slideshow relating to the subject matter, which you can also watch during the program. Uh, just a quick programming note, next week I'll be joined in studio by a special guest. Our uh, contest winner from Follow the Truth, our conference we held back in November, Dwayne Hickey. Uh, will be joining me for dinner Sunday night at a fine eatery just down the the, uh, road from the studio here. And then he'll join me in studio as my special guest host. And Dwayne also helped produce the show. Uh, So he uh, he selected or gave us some suggestions for guests, and uh, they were just terrific suggestions. And uh, Elbridge tracked them down. So joining us in the first hour next week will be uh, inventor John Searle, who is the creator of the Searle Effect Generator. And the claim is that the Searle Effect Generator, or or SEG, can produce zero-point energy. Uh, We'll also be joined by extraterrestrial disclosure activist, author, political commentator, and radio host, Elizabeth Trutwin. So, uh, that promises to be an excellent show. Uh, But tonight, and for the next 40 minutes or so, uh, we're going to delve into the supernatural. Uh, And this is a tale that uh, it goes back... Fourteen years now. It all began, and I am now cribbing uh, from the inside of the dust jacket of uh, this book called Clock Shavings. It all began in a dank basement in Denver, Colorado in the summer of 2001. A group of friends attempted to contact a dead French artist on the Ouija board as part of a research project about the Holy Grail. They were hoping to get to, uh, help, uh, to get help, rather, decoding an historic occult mystery pertaining to the royal bloodline of France. They had no idea they were opening a portal to hell. What followed was a 13-year adventure into the supernatural, trailing mysterious clues given to them from beyond the veil. And that group of friends that gathered before the Ouija board in Denver back in 2001 included my guest, Tracy R. Twyman, is an American non-fiction author who writes about esoteric history and the occult. Her most well-known books include The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, and Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. Her latest book, as I mentioned, is entitled Clock Shavings. Tracy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for being here. First of all, the origin of the uh, uh, the the, the word or the term rather, uh, clock shavings is rather interesting, and I I, just to spend a a few moments uh, talking about this because it's what I, from what I understand, it's based on a mistranslation of a Swedish term.
1: Yes, and you know what? Funny enough, I only discovered that really when a reader wrote into me after the book was published and explained to me what the term actually means.
0: Right, I read that, on I guess, on your blog post.
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah, so I discovered the deeper meaning of it uh, recently, but originally I just knew that it was there was a reference to this in this anthropology book about witchcraft that came out in the 20s. It's called God of the Witches. The, the author is Dr. Margaret Alice Murray. And, uh, the quote goes, the sweetest witches had a special rite, which is obviously, which was obviously intended to impress ignorant minds. They were given a little bag containing a few shavings of a clock to which a stone was tied. They threw this into the water saying, as these shavings of the clock do never return to the clock from which they are taken, so may my soul never return to heaven. So it's basically, uh, part of a ritual where uh, I guess, I think this was a, a reference to a, a story about Swedish witches in about, I think, the 1600s from this book. So, uh, they were, they were saying that the Swedish witches used to have a ritual, you know, when they would have their witches' sabbats, and, uh, sometimes they would, um, conjure up the goat god and actually make a pact with him. This is the, the, um, Baphomet. The that would be Baphomet? Would it? The,
0: the devil. Right.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, you know, I'd, I'd seen this uh, quotation, which I thought was strange, because I'd never heard of clocks having shavings before, but I figured, well, maybe the, metal, the gears grind out metal shavings, and maybe they were using those in the ritual somehow. Sure. And uh, it turns out, according to the, writer, the reader that wrote in, they pointed out that, well, in the Swedish language and in other sort of Germanic uh, origin languages, the word for a bell is glock so it, it sounds very similar to cloth and that, that's how this, uh, this term ended up in that anthropology book. And this person wrote, not only with the knowledge of the, the uh, German and Swedish languages, but also it seems they had heard something about this ritual when they were children. This guy, this person wrote in uh, said that he had heard about this witchcraft ritual, and what they're actually dealing with is the shavings of a church bell. Right. So he said that uh, Satanists, even up until you know relatively recent times when he was a child uh would sometimes uh sneak into churches and get the the shavings of the clock, because apparently there's shavings uh that are, that come off when the bell is being tuned right. and I, you have to do that every so often apparently so these shavings with, uh, from the, the church bell would be saved and uh, used in rituals in, in this manner, and, and uh, basically people would uh, use them to make a sort of declaration that um, I'm giving away my eternal uh, inheritance in heaven, and making a pact instead with the goat god.
0: And, and so, yeah, that's
1: what I use that in the book. Yeah, it, it's uh,
0: it's fascinating, and and uh, obviously, yeah, when we're talking about these these bell shavings, and I understand uh, that a bell, and this is something I didn't know, uh, and I think I read this on your website, uh, part of your blog, that these. Uh, bells uh, are in, that are placed in churches, uh, at least in some orders, are almost go through the same baptismal ritual that a newborn child would go through. So that these shavings, yeah. these shavings uh, perhaps uh, these shavings are taken from bells that have not yet been baptized. Uh, and so therein lies, I guess, sort of the occultic power uh, that are associated with these bell shav- shavings that would be used in some sort of uh, a satanic ritual, as you say. Right now,
1: and yeah. I, yeah. I, when I when I chose that title for my book, I wasn't necessarily declaring that I have gone through such a ritual or that no, I've taken no, no, no. my own soul. But it's just uh, I, the material that we deal with in the book does get into very dark and. Um, uh, I guess satanic material so
0: absolutely yeah.
1: it seemed like an appropriate title
0: it 's a great title, and, and, uh, it's a, and the, the backstory <laughs> is fascinating um, now listen let set Thank the you. stage for me uh here i I mentioned, as I read from the inside of the dust cover, about this dank basement in Denver, uh, and uh, you gathered with some friends before the uh, the Ouija board uh what's the mm-hmm. w- why were you seeking help from beyond the veil uh, regarding uh, you know, the uh, the mysteries of the Holy Grail. Let's start there.
1: Okay, well, back then I was publishing this magazine called Dagobert's Revenge that was really all about the subject matter that now people are more familiar with uh, because of the Da Vinci Code. And it's, it's about this bloodline in France that uh, purportedly goes back perhaps to Jesus and perhaps Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There's these stories uh, surrounding this bloodline in France. It's the bloodline that became the first royal house in France. So the
0: Merovingians. Yeah. Yes. The long-haired and, Frankish uh, people.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, they were sacred kings in France uh, back when they ruled and supposedly had um, magical powers in their hair and um, there are stories about how their uh, the progenitor of their bloodline was born of two fathers. that He, he had uh, a human father... And then also, while his mother was pregnant, she also became impregnated a second time by a sea creature called a Kinnator. And uh, in my research, I sort of got the idea that there's more to this story than just the uh, heretical tale that, that uh, you know, the bloodline goes back to Jesus and Mary Magdalene, which is what previous authors writing about this subject had theorized. Well, that's the whole mystique around this bloodline. That's why it's called the bloodline of the Holy Grail. And there's actually secret societies, mystical societies, all dedicated to the mysteries of this bloodline, which actually connects not only to the bloodline of France, but also royal bloodlines all over uh, Europe.
0: All right. Listen, uh, Tracy, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve into this 13-year supernatural adventure. Okay. Find out more about the uh, the Holy Grail and who this individual was that you contacted from beyond the veil. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740. Uh, Tracy Twyman is here. Clock Shavings is her new book, and we were uh, talking about the Merovingians, who were this, uh, this uh, the rulers of uh, the Franks, uh, which later became France, uh, sort of in the Middle Ages. And uh, it has been long, uh, sort of, part of legend that they were the descendants of. Uh, the bloodline of Christ, a part of the bloodline of Christ. And that's and interesting because it's recently this whole discussion, you mentioned the Da Vinci Code, and which is sort of all about that. It's been given new currency because of uh, a new book out by uh, Simka Yakubovich, The Lost Gospel Decoding the Ancient Text that Reveals Jesus' Marriage to Mary the Magdalene. And mm-hmm. um, not that, you know, that's where we're necessarily going, debating that. Um, but so this was, and this, this idea of a holy grail, Uh, I mean, it has two meanings. There is the chalice, of course, that that, uh, Christ used supposedly at the Last Supper, Uh, but then it becomes sort of a a metaphor, I guess, the chalice containing the blood, the bloodline of of Christ. Is that the idea?
1: Well, that uh, was an interpretation that I would say was promoted by most Grail researchers, and I don't necessarily reject that interpretation. Okay. I think that from my research, it seems like it's very multifaceted indeed, and... uh, Ultimately, we came up with the idea that it, the, the grail symbol is really one of the oldest symbols and uh, probably represents the greatest um, sacred treasure in the history of humans. And uh, this is because our research, and I say we, I mean my husband Brian at the time was part of the research team. Also, there were some other people involved. Uh, we formed an organization that we refer to in the book called the Ordo Lapsic Exilus. It was yes. basically a, a, a club that we came up with dedicated to researching this topic. And our research pointed at a, at a older origin to this bloodline and the mystique around it than just Jesus. That might have been part of the story, but it seems like it also goes back actually to the uh, pre-Sumerian uh, civilizations and to these... Uh, fallen angels or Nephilim or watchers that uh, other people write about. It. You know, other people think perhaps they're uh, space aliens or something. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they are or not, but definitely it seems like this.
0: The Anunnaki, um, right. This
1: group of people, this group of superhumans really, uh, seems like in legend you can find it throughout uh, all sorts of different cultures. They seem to point to this extra human origin for the human royal bloodlines and for the early civilizations of humanity. Okay, so in in
0: pursuit uh, of this...
1: that's that's sort of what we were researching at
0: the time. Right. So what led you to, then, this dank basement in Denver and sitting in front of a Ouija board looking for answers to this mystery of the grail? Why a Ouija board?
1: Well, I think at the time we were writing about Jean Cocteau because he was... This is a French artist who's dead now. He died in the 60s most of his work in the 40s through the 60s.
0: The great French He was poet. A,
1: a poet and mm-hmm. an artist and a filmmaker and purportedly he was uh, one of the grandmasters, one of the most recent grandmasters really of this group called the Priory of Zion, which they talk about in the Da Vinci Code. And what this is is the French secret society that's dedicated to these mysteries of the uh, royal bloodline of France and the Holy Grail symbolism. So uh, w- we were going on the theory that, well, maybe the Priory of Zion really does have some insight or secrets into the mysteries of the Holy Grail, and maybe Jean Cocteau would know about that. And the thing is that Jean Cocteau was known in his lifetime to have participated many times in seances, and he very much believed yeah. that you could talk to the dead.
0: Now, Victor was Hugo just, uh, was also know, a, to... Was Victor Hugo and, and, and people like Salvador Dali, were they also uh, members of this group?
1: You know, Victor Hugo is one of the grandmasters listed also, actually, right. In front of, right before, uh, Cocteau, and they were friends also, and in fact did seances together. So yes, uh, I mean he fits right in, right in with the story here. Um, and but yeah, I, we were fascinated by John Cocto's work. We thought there was a lot of secret symbolism in it, perhaps uh, that could en- enlighten our uh, research. But it needed more. We, we were having a hard time deciphering it. We we thought we needed more um, insight, basically something something that maybe the other researchers we were competing with wouldn't have access to, something they wouldn't think of. And you fact, wanted to you get know, it... Let's just try the Ouija board.
0: And get the information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you know what? The f- funny thing is it basically just worked right away. We immediately got uh, a response. I had never really did, uh, gotten any response from a Ouija board, and, of course, I hadn't really tried it since I was 12. You know, I was uh, about 24 years old when I when I did this, uh, this story that we're talking about, trying to contact John Cocteau. But I hadn't done anything with a Ouija board since I was a little girl, and I had never gotten any response. But this time it uh, worked immediately, and <coughs> we got some interesting results. And it started us off on this, this quest that just got weirder and weirder as it went on.
0: And, and so uh, tell me, I mean, did you contact uh, a Cocteau?
1: How did we contact? What
0: well, no did you and, and what, what oh yes. and what were the questions and what were the uh, some of the the replies?
1: Well, it started off with just you know are you there? really uh, got a response to that And then I, I was asking him some of the more detailed questions about his artwork, some of the, the uh, codes that we thought were were in the artwork. And uh, really we got a response, but it was kind of difficult to work with the results we were getting, because he had a hard time speaking in English, and what he kept saying over and over again was that he he uh, he was he said, I am blocked for you at one point. It was one of the more clear messages we got. I am blocked for you. So he kept saying that he was having a hard time communicating. Um, and he also kind of told us that we needed to talk to someone else. He said, see the sun. And for a while we thought this was referring to something in one of his paintings, and eventually... Uh, we figured out he was referring to the sun as someone else. And it turned out that the sun was another symbol or a term for this figure, uh, Cain. And I'm talking about Cain in the Bible. Cain was actually one of the figures that we were doing a lot of research about.
0: The Cain that slew Abel. Uh,
1: Yeah, the the Cain that killed Abel. Also, there's quite a lot written about the idea that maybe he was actually a uh, major figure in the ancient world, sort of the pre-Diluvian world, that, um, you know, a lot of the details may have been forgotten in history, but basically the, the theory, and we were researching this at the time, the theory is that Cain was actually a king, uh, that there's there's other uh, characters with a very similar name to Cain in uh, the, the histories of ancient cultures, such as the Sumerians. <laughs> and that... Um, and, then, and that basically the Bible story kind of points to an extraterrestrial or extra human origin for Cain. That he may have actually been of the bloodline of the serpent, of the, the fallen angels, and also that he uh, passed on his genes and ha- there was a royal bloodline descendant from him. Because uh, basically uh, witches, a lot, a lot of uh, royal witches or people from witchcraft bloodlines in Europe consider Cain to be an ancestor. Also, there's a like I said, um, people in, in the I would say early 20th century did some research on Cain, wrote some books like L. A. Waddell was uh, one of the earlier Sumeriologists who wrote about this this concept that maybe Cain was uh, one of the major figures in pre-diluvian history of the humans, and so uh, we were we were already thinking about Cain as basically an ancestor of this Grail bloodline that we were talking about, and sure enough, that's who. Um, Cocktail told us we needed to talk to, and so we uh it, it took a few days really of talking to Cocktail before we kind of gave up and realized that he was telling us to talk to someone else and that he was having a hard time communicating. but we did eventually talk to uh Kane, who he called the sun or the black sun and and that's when I would say things really took off because we started getting some very useful answers. Kane didn't have any problem talking to us, and we and He had a lot to say about all sorts of things.
0: Well, if if in fact Cain, uh, and and I have heard these accounts uh, that um, uh, Cain was in fact, uh, you know, born from the seed of the serpent, which according to I guess biblical tradition would make him, uh, you know, born of Satan, uh, if if the serpent is Satan. Then if that bloodline continued. Uh, then the Merovingians and other bloodlines in, in Europe, far from being descended from Jesus, uh, in fact, would be descended from the Satanic line. Is that correct?
1: Well, that is correct, except um, I'm not necessarily precluding the uh, presence of the Jesus element also. I'm saying basically that this may be the origin of all of these royal bloodlines in human history, this is the uh, the reason why they're thought to be royal, and that that there's no reason why that couldn't also be part of the ancestry of Jesus, and therefore part of the blood that he would have passed on if he had children as well. And um, again, I'm not it's basically the idea is um, instead of taking the cultural value judgments that we have in modern times and short, trying to paste that onto events that happened in the past just accept that these stories are telling us that there's a supernatural origin to this bloodline. Jesus is described as being very supernatural, and there's some sort of mysticism applied to his bloodline
0: Right. right. that
1: I think may be all part of the same story, basically. So I'm, I'm not saying it means anything, really, uh, having anything to do with evil. Uh, no, I'm not saying that Jesus is evil, necessarily, if he uh, is, in fact, part of the same bloodline. It's more of it's a supernatural bloodline and and uh, there's characters that are considered bad that came from that bloodline and there's characters that were good that came from that bloodline but it's it's a superhuman uh bloodline with right. an origin beyond uh, some beyond what we 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 know
0: so did you get any verification? I mean, how do you know that you were speaking with or communicating with Cain, uh, the Black Sun, through this uh, Ouija board? Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're told, uh, paranormal researchers tell us that that uh, this, um, the Ouija board, you know, can be manipulated by tricksters and, and uh, lower level spirits and so forth. How do you know? Did you get some sort of a verification?
1: Well, what we got was just consistency over time. Because we had numerous conversations over and over again with Kane. And he eventually referred us to Baphomet, uh, and we started talking to him as well. Um, and there was definitely different personalities and consistent, uh, phraseology and sorts of messages that we would get from each one. And, and that, and there were things that, details like down to the way that they would move the planchette, the, the way, basically the handwriting, <laughs> the way they move around the letters. Was different for each spirit, and I would say that Cain knew things that Cain would know. Cain had information about the things we were asking about pertaining to him and his history. <clears throat> Baphomet, the same thing, and we weren't. At, the, the, also, the other thing is like with Baphomet, and that came out of nowhere. I was not expecting to be referred to Baphomet. I know that in, in Baphomet was a, a major, you know, figure in the whole story because the, the story of the Grail bloodline does get into the Knights nice Templar. And, you know, Baphomet was the idol that the Knights Templar worshipped. Uh, But I, as a researcher at that time, when we were told that you need to talk to Baphomet, I had not thought about Baphomet in years. I hadn't really written anything about him. It wasn't something that was on my mind. And all of a sudden we were told, "This this is who you really need to talk to to get the answers. Now, and sure enough, it was that was exactly who I needed to talk
0: to. Well, just uh, let me just back up to Kane because you, you you write in in chapter three that after talking to Cain, you experienced what seemed like a quantum leap in consciousness, greater than you'd ever experienced before. Uh, what do you mean by that? Tell me.
1: I just mean that yeah, the the uh, metaphysical questions that I had been pondering and trying to work out for years, r- writing about these uh, very esoteric subjects, all of a sudden everything started coming to me very easily. Not only did a lot of the um, answers that he gave me pan out, you know I was able to research and find out that oh, those the things that he told me seemed like they might be correct, but not only that, it, I actually was able to figure out my own stuff on my own a lot easier. like the, the connections in my mind would just come together a lot easier. Some of the things he told us, he told us about the true story of or at least what he calls the true story of the flood. What he thinks, what he says, caused it. He told us this uh, epic tale, really. It was amazing about how um, <clears throat> he was the heir to the throne of Eden, as he called it. He described Eden as being this kingdom, and that he was supposed to be the heir to what he called the throne of Adam. Um, but that there was a rivalry with his brother Abel, and that's what really the uh, the conflict between them was about was about who's going to inherit this throne. And he said there was literally a war that took place between him and other members of his family over the throne that was fought with swords and axes. And uh, it sounded like, you know, like one of those epic battles in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I mean, that's, sure. that's the way I imagined it as he was describing it. Right. That right. it was just this massive thing that that ravaged the earth. And he even said at the end of it, that he actually just got so angry at the rebellion, and that's what he considered it, a rebellion by his own family members against what he considered to be his rightful rule of Eden. He got so angry that he actually did some sort of magical ritual, some sort of alchemical process that caused uh, Eden and some of the other surrounding land to become flooded and actually collapse underneath the waves. And that's what caused the flood, that that is, he said that the, the fall of Atlantis is the same story, that it's, you know, it's just a retelling of the same, um, ancient memory. And, uh, that he, this is what then caused him and some of the other, I guess these are the characters we remember as fallen angels. They were all, um, imprisoned in the center of the earth, which is hell now, I guess. Um, as a punishment basically for that. And he he right. called it the wrath of Cain, and he said that it was all his fault. It was something he did because he was angry.
0: Interesting. Now, uh, if memory serves, uh, another important artifact, uh, aside from the Holy Grail, was the uh, the spear of Longinus, which, named after the Roman centurion Longinus, who supposedly pierced Christ's side while he was on the cross to make sure he was dead, and then the vascular bleeding indicated that he was dead. Uh, This spear contains the blood of Christ and has... Great uh, occult uh, importance, obviously. Uh, many, many world leaders, Charlemagne, Napoleon, reportedly. Himmler used the spear in initiation rites with the SS. Uh, but wasn't the spear of Longinus supposedly forged from a meteor by a um, tubal cane? Was that a descendant uh, of, of canes?
1: You know, we didn't talk about the spear of Longinus at all. So I don't know what he has to say about that. I, mean, I know I've done some reading about it on my own. But um, I'm not actually familiar with the, with the Tubalcane story. Where, uh, where did you uh, hear that part?
0: Uh, it seems to me I, uh, there was a book on the, uh, entitled The Spear of Destiny uh, years ago okay, uh, yes. associated with a guest that I had on the program. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to side rail the, uh, the conversation here with that, but I just thought I was well, wondering no, if there I, might have I, been I a connection. Listen, we'll I mean,
1: I can tell you what he, what he has to say about the uh, crucifixion, what Daphne told us about the crucifixion. It was quite interesting if you mm-hmm. want to hear that.
0: Would love to. When we come back, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Tracy Twyman, the author of Clock Shavings, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back. Uh, Tracy Twyman is with us, the author of Clock Shavings, uh, which details a remarkable 13-year journey into the supernatural in pursuit of uh, mysteries pertaining to the Holy Grail. Uh, now, uh, we were talking about Baphomet. Uh, now, was it Baphomet or Cain that gave you an account? Of, it was Baphomet, an account of the crucifixion.
1: It was Baphomet. Okay. And, boy, was it wild. I mean, um, I heard from the, I remember reading the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book, which is the book about the Holy Grail bloodline that came out in the 80s. It was really popular.
0: Lawrence Gardner, And they had
1: said that, they have suggested, you know, maybe uh, the, the reason why the bloodline is coming from Jesus, the reason why it exists is because Jesus really didn't die on the cross. And that maybe he, that's why he was able to go and father a bloodline in France later. And, but I always, I thought that was perhaps not necessary. I mean, he could have, uh, you know, he could have fathered the bloodline before he died on the cross. It it doesn't really matter as far as that that theory goes. But definitely we decided to ask Baphomet about the uh, crucifixion, and he had a totally different version of it than uh, than most of us are used to. So he basically said that it was Judas, not Jesus, who died on the cross. And we asked how that was accomplished. He took credit for it. He said he was, he orchestrated the whole thing, and that he basically, he on that as a spirit who was involved, and as a spirit had been responsible for the performing of tricks, illusions, that allowed people to think that it was Jesus on the cross instead of Judas. And that, you know, we asked why this was uh, done. Um, basically, it was some sort of, uh, he described it as being a, a you know, a blood sacrifice. And um, it, the, the weird thing is, this is what the, the Quran says.
0: Yes, exactly. About, I was going to say. Uh,
1: <laughs> this is, this is their, their version of the crucifixion. It is right. actually the.
0: Which That's makes it literally certain.
1: what it says, which we didn't realize at the time.
0: But that makes that makes some sense. I mean, I, I certainly don't subscribe to that notion. I I am a Christian, not a very good one, as I've said many times. But I, I certainly believe, uh, you know, that Christ died on on the cross and was resurrected, as the Bible says. But that you would that that, that Baphomet would uh, suggest uh, that you know that there was this s- switching on the cross, and it was Judas. And as you say, this is part of the uh, the tradition in the Quran, because you have pointed out. Uh, that that Baphomet has uh, perhaps Islamic origins uh, himself, if I can call Baphomet an, a hymn. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a mystery, and no one really has figured out what the connection is yet. We all know that um, the Templars were accused at the time of sort of colluding with the Saracen enemy. There was rumors that they did rituals together, the, the secret Templar order, and then uh, on the other side, there were uh, secret societies associated with the um, Islamic armies during the Crusades. One of them was called the Assassins. There were some other groups also. But the theory is that, well, maybe they, maybe it was the Assassins or some group like that actually initiated the Templars into some sort of uh, secret, mysterious belief system that may have had, you know, in some way been Islamic or been perceived that way by outsiders. I don't think it's more likely to be having been perceived that way by outsiders. I don't think it's certainly uh, mainstream Islam, necessarily, because that doesn't really match up with um, the other things the Templars were accused of doing. I mean, we don't think of Islam as being uh, that similar to witchcraft or Satanism. So, uh, I don't know what it was exactly, but... I do think they seem to have been initiated into some sort of Eastern mysteries and, uh, people at the time, like renegar- renegade Templars who, who went uh, afterwards and, and sort of spilled the beans to other people and, and talked about the kind of rituals they were involved in. Uh, one of the things they said was that they would, they would yell out the word Yala all the time during the rituals, which is basically saying, hello, Allah. And, uh, but there are other aspects of the ritual that seem more like uh, Gnostic Christianity or um, Nacine or Ophite Gnosticism. So, um, and, the, uh, and the Ophite Gnosticism, Gnosticism involves um, worshipping basically the serpent and the serpent bloodline uh, from the Garden of Eden. So, I, I mean, it's a, it's quite a mystery. And this is something I'm trying to tease out in my next book, too, to sort of figure out. What Baphomet may really have been for the Templars and how does it really tie in with these supposedly Islamic origin mysteries? But I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting that he told us the, basically the Islamic origin heresy of the crucifixion story. There's also this, um, this book called the Gospel of Barnabas that came out, um, has been, is thought by scholars to have actually been something forged in maybe the 1300s, but the, the implication from the author, you know, they wanted you to think it was one of the original Gospels. But uh it, it tells the same story of the, the uh, crucifixion, but, you know, where where, uh, where it's Jews, Judas instead of Jesus that dies on the cross. And um, basically the assumption amongst scholars is that, well, it was forged in the Middle Ages probably by someone who was sympathetic to Islam. So it's interesting that this is a, this is an aspect of our sort of heretical Christian past, and I, I don't think a lot of people have thought about it, how, you know, Islamic origin heresies are, you know, really a part of the history of Christianity in a way.
0: Right, right. What what was your uh, perspective going into this investigation before the Ouija boards? I mean, I, mean, I know that you write about uh, esoteric history and the occult, but did you have any... Any notion of a of a spirit world or a belief in a spirit world. In other words, did when this started happening to you through the Ouija board, uh, were you were you frightened? Were you surprised? Or did you just assume that you would get some sort of a response?
1: You know, I I think really I wasn't that surprised. I think I must have gone into it with some sort of assumption uh, about the existence of supernatural uh, forces, and not only that, the assumption that you can contact them. So, I think that may be why it was so easy for me. I mean, I'm not, I I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, not since I was very young. Uh, When I was young, I just sort of understood that this is an aspect of life and I haven't questioned it much. And I think that that's why um, things work for me. You know, I think if you suspend your disbelief and and you don't even have to have faith necessarily, but just if you stop disbelieving that something could happen. Then it, it becomes possible for you. So, yeah, I, I remember at the time afterwards, after the first two sessions, just thinking, you know what? I'm not scared. When the, the more of this this stuff happens, the less surprised I am. You know.
0: Well, I would like so, to hear what you learned about the apocalypse uh, when we come back. If we're if you're good for that. Okay. Tracy Up Twyman on. is with us, the author of Cla- Clock Shavings. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show and our conversation right after this. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Tracy Twyman stays with us uh, for a few moments yet, and we're talking uh, about her latest book, Clock Shavings, the true story of the uh, ordo Lapsit exilis. And this was a a 13-year journey into the supernatural, uh, which began with... Um, her team 's quest to sort of decode some of the mysteries surrounding the uh, the Holy Grail, which ultimately uh, led to a, a Ouija board session uh, attempting to uh, contact certain uh, spirits, including French poet Jean Cocteau. Uh, this later led to communications with uh, the likes of the um, of Cain the murderer, uh, Baphomet the goat. And, uh, well, as we'll uh, learn, and we'll get into this as well, time permitting, Lucifer the light bearer, and Satan himself. I mean, uh, uh, this was um, a journey that ultimately led to hell, as you uh, point out in the book.
1: Yeah, it did get really dark, and basically, uh, I don't know how it got there. You know, it just one thing led to another. I think uh, talking to Cain was strange enough. Then we get referred to Baphomet. Baphomet is really um, sort of an aspect... Of Satan, I would say, or maybe Satan is an aspect of him. It's hard to say, but <laughs> but uh, we did at one point ask about the apocalypse, and the results we got there. I guess that's one of the first seances where I would say I really got kind of freaked out about who I was dealing with.
0: I would I, think. I would get think.
1: freaked out when I was told that he that Baphomet himself had orchestrated you know the the, uh, the killing of Judas on the cross. That should have freaked me out, but it didn't. Hmm. But uh when when Bapnet starts sort of excitedly telling us about the apocalypse, it really caused me to question what his uh motivations were. Because well, here's what he said. Okay. When the conversation started off we we're asking about about uh the war in heaven and how what's the rivalry between you, you know, you as an perhaps Satan, an incarnation of Satan. Uh, and God, you know, why, what's the conflict here? And first thing he said is a conflict over the love of man. And so it turns out, from further prompting, he says, it's because God loved man, and he, Baphomet, did not love man.
0: Right, right.
1: And so uh, God tried, he, he elaborated and said, God tried to get him in the garden of Eden to bow down to uh Adam and he refused and he was disgusted and that's basically how the whole war started. And again it turns out and I had to re I only found this out later after researching well that's another story from the Quran and um, again it says that uh yeah the re- the reason why Lucifer fell from heaven the reason why there was a war is because uh, that God tried to get Lucifer to bat on the man and he didn't want to, or in the Quran, he's called Iblis. But it's the same story. And so the conversation starts off there. And then, how did it go? It was like basically uh, he starts talking about stuff that seems like he's talking about the apocalypse. And I thought we were asking about the Garden of Eden and the fall there and the origins of the, of the conflict. And so I asked for elaboration. I was basically saying, how could you, I'm confused about the Aren't you talking about things happening in the future, not in the past? He said, yes, now really soon. And then he starts getting like wanting to really talk about the apocalypse. He would kind of imply that basically the war in the Garden of Eden and the apocalypse were all part of the same process. And to him, there wasn't a lot of uh, time difference there. It wasn't like.
0: Sure. He exists outside of space and time.
1: Exactly. So to him, yeah, it's all happening. It's, it's this war that's happening right now. It's always been happening. And at the same time, the, the end time, as he sees it, is coming soon. And he's very excited about it. And so and he just, we asked, you know, why are you guys doing this? Why are you guys having a fight? In which the, uh, the souls of mankind hang in the balance. And he described it as a game. He said it's uh, he was just trying to you know, basically get his dignity back from this in- this embarrassing incident in the Garden of Eden. And he doesn't take it very seriously, and he thinks that at the end he and his father, God, are going to reconcile. And uh, he described it as a game where we're the pawns, basically. The pawns and the, uh, you know, and the prize.
0: Be... Huh? The pawns and the prize.
1: Exactly. Oh yeah. I mean that's what really freaked me out, when you started talking about that uh, hell was this place where we should, we should look forward to going there, it, we're going to find freedom from God's rule there, and uh.
0: Well of course, that's Satan's then, whole game, isn't it?
1: <laughs> and we said, well why do you, we asked, are you really trying to um, trick humans into sinning so that they'll lose their souls and go to hell, just like the Christians say? And he said yes, that's uh, he wants to do that quote to defy god
0: right right and
1: it's just just the joy of getting one over on god basically he's willing to go through all this effort to uh to you know make us sin so that we'll end up in hell and then he wants not only is doing that he wants us to feel good about it he's trying to get us to uh think that it's a it's a good thing and that he's spreading enlightenment, and there'll even be more enlightenment in hell once you go there.
0: Well, I mean, what are your family and friends uh, thinking at this time, uh, Tracy? Are they not, I I don't know what your religious uh, background is or your family's, but are are they not concerned for your well-being? You are in communion with Satan, Lucifer. You mean what was going on back then or what now? Uh, Both, I guess. (laughs)
1: Well, back then, I don't think anyone really knew what was going on. They just knew we were publishing this. Uh, a Kixotic magazine back then, and we were, putting, we were about to write a book, but um, the secret society, you know, that we were running at the time, and which we ended up taking uh, mem- members from the public too. And they, uh, some of the members of the public actually joined a, a slightly higher uh, echelon of the group and ended up taking an oath. To, we, we had all these blood oaths from from people. It would like r- write in and like. They would cut their hands and, and and bleed onto the paper to sign their name and they would pledge allegiance to the order. And uh we didn't really even think about what we were doing at the time. But basically what was going on was we were making a pact with Baphomet.
0: Right. And
1: Baphomet was asking us basically to extend the pact to all these other people. And we were we created this organization that kind of acted as an energy multiplier for all the other work we were doing. And uh but but, as far as my friends and family, I mean outside of the order, most of them didn't know what was going on. so you know we were just, the way I saw it, we were um researching a historical mystery, and the organization was there to kind of help with that research. But what ended up happening basically was we got so just personally involved with Baphomet and the other spirits we were talking to, and they became very um especially Baphomet kind of aggressive in, in the sense that <laughs> they kept coming up with projects for me to do and stuff that I was supposed to do with the, with the order lapse at excellence to try to, I, I guess, make it uh, have more public involvement. And uh, it just seemed like I, I just had taken on so many projects and so much work to do. And I started to question it and, and wonder, you know, why am I basically being a slave to this uh, spirit? And, you know, I wasn't getting much out of it at the time I was also wondering, you know, why, what is this leading to? With all these people who are members of this group, what have they gotten involved in? And, and I, I kind of felt the burden of, of you know, having basically, I don't know, not necessarily their souls, but just having the allegiance and the effort and the energy that they had put into the order and the uh, responsibility that they had given me. It was just very much weighing on my soul, you know.
0: And and what about your soul, uh, uh, Tracy? Uh, I mean, any concern uh, there for your own personal, your your immortal soul? And what may...
1: Well, I think, you know, I mean, I grew up uh, Protestant, or that's what my family was. So there's always this little, there's a bit of uh, fear or trepidation there, because I, I think especially maybe the Protestant view is, well, if you do any sort of, dabbling with the devil you know, there may no, be no way out at that point you know you may you may forfeit your soul and 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 there's uh basically no way to get it back so i don't necessarily believe that but you know the fact that you growing up in a household like that being told that when you're a child you know it's still going to stick with you in, in the back of your mind and uh it's probably still there in the back of my mind but um,
0: but now you have confirmation I never really that he's
1: tried real the pack signing over my soul so i think i'm okay
0: okay but now you have confirmation that he's real right
1: oh yeah for sure and, and you know that's uh interesting it's well see that whole thing this whole thing um it's interesting to me <laughs> and that's why i never really stopped talking to the spirits or using this as a is a uh, a method for research i did shut down the order the order lapsed at um, and basically uh, change the sort of relationship that I have with these spirits. I, I no longer let them uh, give me assignments and sort of push me around. But uh, I still can go to them sometimes for insight about things that I'm researching. And I still get interesting results. And, you know, again, it's not like you just write a book based on what they say. Uh, you don't just uh, you use that as your sole source of research. But I still have questions about things I'm researching and they can uh, give me an angle that I might not have thought of before and it, it, it's, well, a, it's a springboard I, for me to do the rest of my research
0: you know I guess my question then would be and again I'm, I'm uh, my bias coming obviously from a, a Christian tradition but why would you buy into that uh, angle why would you believe if you're in communion with baphomet and and you know Lucifer why would you why would you even consider believing them?
1: Oh, I've been giving lo- given lots of very useful information in the past. I mean, um, in, the, in the book, there's a large uh, portion of it dedicated to this research I did into the origins of chess. And when we asked Kane about the origins of chess, he gave us all sorts of information about how it came from northern Afghanistan and the meanings of, uh, of the pieces and um, what the game used to be like before it be- became adapted into what it is now. And all that stuff panned out. Everything that uh, he told us that is verifiable, I was able to verify. And then, you know, he added some stuff about where he he says the the origin of it is is basically this game that he said is, um, is meant to represent that war in Eden that I told you about. That basically chess is re- recreating the war in Eden. And he said that it was a, an alchemical game originally and actually had a magical effect when you played it. It was like, it was a a ritual game, more than a, hmm. a competitive game. Interesting. It's a ritual for of killing the king, uh, or killing the, uh, the the pretender to the throne, basically, um, the throne of Eden. Right, so right. you know, he, he told me a very interesting story. Um, well, maybe they they mix in believable. some
0: they mix in some truths, perhaps with some lies. We're almost out of time here. Let me ask you this. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, would you do you renounce Satan?
1: Well, I didn't do it. I mean, I'm I'm not. uh, It's not an allegiance to Satan. I'm just talking to spirits. It's like doing an interview with Charles Manson in in prison. You know, you're not. uh, You don't have to renounce Charles Manson afterwards. It's just an interview.
0: That's that's an interesting point. Okay, granted. Uh, i I, I liked, uh, the uh, <laughs> the um, the term you know uh, my my conversations with Baphomet panned out i don't know if that was an intended pun or people caught the at pan baphomet <laughs> uh interesting uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: listen tracy the a fascinating journey um wow it, all I could say i guess is be careful i mean i i don't know i you're playing with fire here.
1: Well, you know what, but yeah, I mean, um, I'm just, I'm adventurous still, you know, I feel like I uh, I have an inside line to something that um, a lot of people, I guess, can't get very easily, and uh, it works out for me very easily, and so I'm going to uh, keep doing it as long as it's useful to me. Ultimately, but, um,
0: Ultimately, did you get what you wanted in terms of information about the Holy Grail?
1: Somewhat, yeah. I think I pretty much cracked it. If you If you research, if you read my books, uh, and Mythos, and then also Clock shavings actually sort of uh, explains some of the un- unfinished stuff in that book. If you read those two books, Clock Shavings and Merovingian Mythos, I think you'll understand the Holy Grail in a totally different light than you've ever thought of it before. And I think that I basically put it all together as well as anyone ever has.
0: All right, well, listen, we'll allow people, uh, we won't, you know, spoil it for them. We'll allow them to read Clock Shavings, which is available to book buyers, and uh, they can uh, uh, unravel the mystery as you did. Tracy, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks.
0: Tracy Twyman, Clock Shavings. My website is richardserrett.com. That's your portal, not to hell, but to The Conspiracy Show. Check it out, and as always, follow the truth.